Hello everyone, welcome to SNIT. Studies in National and International Development is the longest running weekly interdisciplinary seminar series at Queen's University. Since 1983, SNIT has proudly hosted prominent Canadian and international scholars who bring fresh perspectives to issues of local, national, and global development. Please share our podcast with friends, family, and colleagues. We're glad to have you with us. So welcome everyone to the 2022 winter term of SNID. Um, I'm Dr. Carolyn Prouse uh, from Geography and Planning and I co-chair SNID with Dr. Aicha Tomach from Cultural Studies and Global Development Studies. And we have our wonderful coordinator here, also uh, Dairon Perez, who's a PhD candidate in Geography. SNID is hosted by Queen's University, which is located on the shores of Lake Ontario on the traditional territories of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy and the Anishinaabek Nation. This territory is included in the Dish With One Spoon Wampum Belt Covenant, an agreement between Anishinaabe, Mississaugas, and Haudenosaunee to peaceably share and care for the resources around the Great Lakes, including Lake Ontario. And among the many things that we're going to hear about in today's session about COVID-19 in Canada, um, I urge us all to consider how COVID, the pandemic, its media coverage, and the policing initiatives that uh, the pandemic has helped unfurl, um, how these are disproportionately harming Indigenous communities here in Kingston, Cataraqui, uh, and across the country. Um, but also to be mindful and supportive of the mutual aid and care that has been happening in Indigenous communities in the wake of ongoing colonial crises on these lands, um, of which the pandemic is, of course, only the latest. A brief intro to SNID for those of you who don't know who we are. Uh, we are Studies in National and International Development. It's the longest running interdisciplinary series at Queen's University. We've been coming to you virtually now for nearly two years um, and we have an exciting lineup of speakers, again, virtual for this term. Uh, and I'll post those in the chat so you have a sense of what's coming up. Uh, and we always meet at this same Zoom link. So hopefully that's accessible for all of you. I will hand it over to Aijin in a moment, but I just wanted to mention that uh, the chat is live, so you should be able to post questions and comments as we go in this session. Um, and we'll also take written and oral questions during the question and answer period at the end of today's talk. Okay, over to you, Aicha. Uh, thank you so much, Carolyn. Uh, we are really excited to have Nora Loreto as our first speaker of the term. Uh, Nora is a writer and an activist whose latest book is called Spin Doctors, How Media and Politicians Misdiagnosed the COVID-19 Pandemic, which is a brilliant book. Nora is also the editor of the Canadian Association of Labour Media and writes opinion and features for many different media agencies. Uh, she produces and hosts two podcasts, which as my students know, are frequently assigned in my courses. Uh, Take Back the Fight, based on her 2020 book about feminism and the digital age, and Sandy and Nora Talk Politics, co-hosted with Sandy Hudson. Uh, Nora lives in Quebec City, uh, and thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. We have to have these like signals to say like, I can't control my mute. It just says, because uh, <laughs> everybody's muted, right? Um, thank you so much for that introduction. That was great. And I did wonder if you called it SNID or if you went with like SNID and I'm very happy you go with SNID because that's obviously a very, that's a great syllable um, that's not used enough in different uh, words, I guess, in English. Um, 
Thank you for the invitation to talk about spin doctors and to talk about COVID. Um, throughout this talk, um, I uh, I encourage you to add comments to the to the chat because I'm going to I'm going to try not to bounce around too too much. But as I've been talking about the book, um, I find because of the moment we're in right now, there's like. 10 things that I have to keep talking about and it does make the conversation a little bit disjointed and so you're very welcome to ask questions or to make comments and I'm, I'm, I'll pick on that uh, pick up on them live and then we can have the conversation after the talk um, in uh, in a couple of minutes I want to start uh, with um, with something I heard today on the radio um, if you follow me online, you'll know that I, I do this daily ritual of self-abuse that's called listening to the radio. And, um, and not like listening to talk radio because I live in Quebec City and if I want to listen to talk radio, it would be even worse because I would also be thinking about what they're saying because my French is, uh, you know, I speak French, but it's, it's been recently since I've spoken French. So my only option is CBC. And so I listen to CBC radio and I listen to The Current and this morning I was promised a segment on um, COVID, uh, the future of COVID and the workplace in this new series that The Current is doing on COVID and the workplace. And I'm gonna pick on CBC radio, but I mean, this is the case across media properties in Canada, um, the way that they formulate these stories. So I'm making my decaf coffee because I drink decaf, uh, a lot of it, which is a bit maybe perhaps weird, but I, I it's, it's actually very delicious um, once you, get unaddicted to caffeine. And I was like, oh, wow, workplace. Like I haven't heard the word workplace on CBC radio in a long time. That's great. Workplace plus COVID plus long COVID. This is awesome. We're going to hear something awesome. Right. And the segment was a, the whole thing was an interview with an individual who got COVID at work, uh, had a very serious uh, case of it ended up in the ICU. <clears throat> His mother uh, was was worried he would die. He was worried he would die, and he talked about going through that experience. And now he has long COVID. And what's that like? There was nothing in the segment that zoomed out and said, "How do we talk about who's to blame? The social conditions for why this individual got COVID." Where is long COVID in any political agenda in this country? Where, what kind of clinics exist? What kind of help is, is there? When you get COVID, are you given information for what long COVID is? Or are you just having to find out that, oh, no, it's normal to last for a month. Ooh, that's a long time. Okay, but it's not long COVID yet. <clears throat> oh, ooh, five months. Yeah, here's what happens at five months if you get, here's what we know happens at a year if you get long COVID. None of that. It was a very personal direct story of someone who's experiencing long COVID. That's fine if that was just this morning, but that is how every aspect of this pandemic has been discussed is you zoom in on the individual and you ask about the individual's experiences, their thoughts, they can express themselves. It's very important because we want to hear about all these diverse experiences. And then the second that there's an opportunity to go broader with the analysis, the question usually pivots. And so on the second segment, it was about a pharmacist who's opening his pharmacy and vaccinating immunocompromised people specifically. And at the end of the interview, the pharmacist starts talking about the responsibility government has. And the host says, mm, tell me about your father, who we knew in this interview played a big role in the pharmacy and the pharmacist's decision to open the clinic. And, you know, of course, the interviewee obliges. Oh, of course, I'll talk about my father. You know what? Of course. Right. And then that's the end. 
I talk about this not just because I'm so obsessed with this ridiculous show and how it encapsulates everything about this pandemic, but because when we individualize the narrative, it gives the audience nothing because either you're living it and you're like, oh yeah, I know what he's talking about. I'm living this. Or you haven't lived this and you're like, damn, I don't want to live with that. It gives you nothing of understanding about our vaccine clinics having outbreaks. I'll use the examples from tomorrow, from this morning. Are vaccine clinics having outbreaks? Are they less safe for immunocompromised people? Are there opportunities for immunocompromised people to get their vaccine somewhere else? What does a long COVID clinic look like? Are there clinics operating everywhere? Or does it just happen to be attached to this research center at the University of Regina? And when you look at everything from workplace deaths to small business owners to um, doctors and nurses, never PSWs, because we don't talk to personal care workers. They're just too hard to convince to talk to us, which is a lot of what journalists will say. They're just too precarious. They won't talk to us. The, the doctors, they, they're, they're self-employed, so they're not worried about getting fired. That's why they're talking to us. And no analysis about race or class or time to even talk to a, to a journalist. This is how Canada's media has covered this pandemic. It has helped make Canadians think that COVID is an individual responsibility, coupled with the line from politicians and from, and from public health officials that this is a, a problem that is a personal problem. That if you follow the public health orders, you will not get COVID. And if you do get COVID, you probably made the bad mistake to go visit friends, to not wear your mask, to not wear a good enough mask, to not wear four masks, right? There was something that you did that you probably shouldn't have done and ah, oh, you got COVID. I did not have the intention to write this book until August, 2020. By August, 2020, I had been every single night crawling through websites and public health, um, public health information, media reports, obituaries, uh, and, and, and social media announcements, posts on Twitter and Facebook, trying to develop what ended up being Canada's only national record of who has died where due to outbreaks. So due to something that conceivably public health and all of the institutions that operate around public health could have stopped or made smaller or done something to stop it from happening again. And so this spreadsheet, I started specifically looking at long-term care and the majority of the entries are in long-term care. And I was adding every single night, how many people died at this facility, at this facility, at this facility. And it broadened from long-term care and retirement residences to shelters and group homes and assisted living facilities, prisons and jails and uh, halfway houses and uh, I think I have them all in hospitals and public hospitals and COVID related to the workplace and COVID related to other kinds of outbreaks where we know that there was an outbreak and it, it directly caused the death of somebody. And in, in trying to gather this data, because there's no central place for this data in Canada, that's a whole other lecture about how bad the data is. I was looking at between 30 and 50 news articles a night. And I'm back to doing it. I mean, I haven't, I have, I, I got to slow down a little bit. I got to do it like three times a week instead of every night, but I'm back to doing it every night because of where we're at with this wave. And while I was doing that, I would see constantly problems in media reports and how this pandemic was being explained or transmitted to average people. And so 
by August, 2020, I was like, okay, enough. I got to write a book about this. And I landed on looking at that, that relationship between the political line of what's happening, of what decisions have been made, of why they're taking certain decisions and the relationship between journalists who are by and large in Canada, stenographers, they're broadcasting information that what frustrates me is often just available at public health. Um, in some cases, it's literally copy and pasted. I mean, in the, in the, in the post-media empire, so so many small town newspapers all across Canada, plus you know the, some of the national ones, you can literally see when the code was incorrectly copied and pasted because there's usually paragraphs that are like different font. And I see this every night and it's like, why, 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 why do it like that? Really, why? And so then the journalism becomes a situation where, you know, journalism that's from like outlets in York region is very good because York region public health puts out a lot of information. Journalism in London is not great because London public health doesn't put out the information. The journalism becomes good or bad as it's really like as it relates to the information com coming from public health. And it created this situation where we have two kinds of journalism related to the, to the pandemic. We have the daily reports that look a lot like stenography that rarely give uh, uh, um, the audience enough information to really understand what's going on. And then we have the longer features that still exist in some of the national newspapers, but they're rare because they, they're expensive, they're difficult to do, and we have very few locations to write. I mean, right now I'm trying to get a, an article published on apartments and COVID, which is something that's just not been written about almost at all in any serious way. And it's like a no from the Washington Post, a no from the Globe and Mail, the, Nat the Toronto Star won't take anything from freelancers. And then you realize, oh, no from McLean's. And it's like, oh God, nothing. Literally, there's no options, right? Like, you know, we're, we're very, very, um, I mean, we're, we're starved for, for, for actual media, um, uh, just locations to write in this country. And so that causes its first problem. But even on top of that, you know, there is this, this perspective and this approach to the pandemic that was set up in March, 2020 that we never got out of. And that it was kind of like the pandemic would be told to journalists through like a long paper tube. And the only image that the journalists could tell you about was what they saw at the end of that tube. They never took the tube off their face and were like, oh, there's a lot more, right? We can talk about tunnel vision, but it's like really like a very long, a long tube and they, they could they could cut it and made it shorter. I mean, there's so many things. Part of the book, of course, talks about um, cuts to, 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 to media, cuts to, to journalism. We lost 3,000 journalism jobs in Canada over the, the course of the pandemic. But, and I'll talk about that um, a bit more, but the reality is, is that you, we have this situation where, for some reason, um, in, in the Ottawa region, all of the news organizations, didn't, like, didn't matter who, CDC, CTV, Global, they would never say where someone died if someone died in residential care, even though Ottawa Public Health has it posted on the website publicly. Never. Global, so same corporation, there's no direction from above. Global BC is the only one that was posting that information regularly in the first six months of the pandemic in 2020 before public health actually put that out themselves. You also had situations where, um, you know, in uh, Halton region, there would be a new outbreak at um, this Chartwell facility in Oakville. And they would say seven people have died. And I'm watching this super closely. I'm like, seven people have died? No, no, it's double digits for sure. Um, that's not right. And you go to the Halton Public Health website, which does report this stuff. And it's like, oh, 19 people have died. It's just that seven people have died in this pandemic. 
And so rather than just adding a sentence, which any journalist could have done, they just put out what public health says. And so as the audience, you're like, oh, okay, seven people have died. Then I guess we can ask ourselves philosophically, what is the what is the difference between seven people dying and 19 people dying when it comes to you know these these large massive problems? Maybe there is no difference, except of, of course there's a difference to the people who've died and their families. But but we constantly got very narrow coverage that 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 never allowed people to see all of the connections that exist within their communities for how COVID was spreading. And so we get down to this, like, okay, you got to really be locked down. And everyone's like, okay, you're really, really locked down. It's like, yeah, yeah. Okay. You got to stop seeing people. No, no, I'm locked down. I haven't seen anybody. No, no, but nobody, like not your parents, not your neighbor. No, no, I'm locked down. I cannot go any further. Like, okay, COVID is still spreading. It's like, I know. And I cannot, I cannot do any more for you. Doug Ford or public health unit or Justin Trudeau, I am locked down. Um, and of course that creates feelings of anxiety, of hopelessness, of, 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 of like social isolation, literal, but also like a, you know, mental kind of isolation from individuals. It's just not being under, able to understand where is this coming from? This pandemic, this virus is everywhere. It's just coming for, for, for us and there's nothing more we can do. There was never really a conversation held in Canada about where people are the most vulnerable. And if you ask that question to anybody on the street, I suspect they'll say a whole bunch of things. Schools, for sure, will be a, a top answer that they'll say, because it's all over the news right now. They might say in the workplace, right? But we know that the vast majority of cases have transmitted through close contact, through very close contact, AKA in the household. So you get it at, at home. And that might come through work. That might come through um, children at school or daycare. But that also comes through shared air, because we also know the majority of people in Canada who've gotten COVID live in apartments. And that within apartment living, if you don't have control over your own airspace, like you are literally locked into a place as a sitting duck waiting for COVID to hit you, which is why when Omicron comes and it's so much easier to get, even if it had been, you know, getting through different cracks or through different vents within our common living facilities, um, it may not have had enough virus to, to, to infect you. But alas, here we are now, and, and you don't need as much virus for it to infect you. And, and now we're seeing so many people saying, I don't understand how I got this. I haven't left. I literally haven't left my apartment in, in four weeks. It's like you got it in your apartment. So it's a very it's a, it's a, it's a very specific example of how nowhere in the conversation are we having these these discussions about community community that like like links like our, from our workplace to our schools to um, uh, uh, to uh, long-term care facilities or whatever. What, by not understanding the pandemic through that community lens, we have been able to imagine that this is a random virus, that it's hitting us randomly, that it operates uh, randomly, that there's no, there is no logic to it. Obviously there's no logic to the virus. I know virologists love when people try to pretend like viruses have like, you know, feelings right and they're like this is a virus right and it's like yeah yeah yeah, i get it but let's like you know we're humans okay we got to talk like this um and and it, and, it, and it flattened who uh was going to get sick and so it was we were all going to get sick and journalists would be reporting this like you can hear the anxiety literally in their voice like it is coming for me it's coming for you it's coming for everybody in the beginning of the pandemic you'll remember we had this whole like well we're flattening the curve we're we're, we're going to fight and do everything we can to flatten the curve and jennifer yang from the toronto star she posted on twitter um probably by may like once we had the data um that showed that flattening the curve in the city of toronto 
only flatten the curve for the top uh, for the majority of white Torontonians and the top two quartiles of, of, of wealthy Torontonians. Um, and so from the start, it was not, it was like, there were always kinds of like peripheral narratives around race, but from the start, there was never a focus on this is a pandemic. This is a virus that is exploiting every one of the cracks within Canada's social, social, uh, system uh, cracks in the fabric, I guess, doesn't make sense. So I'll say like, you know, tears in the fabric or whatever. Um, and so one, it's a virus that disproportionately injures and, and kills disabled people. Two, it was a virus, is a virus that disproportionately infects, injures, and kills racialized people and in disproportionately in, in, uh, infects, injures, and, um, and, and causes harm to Indigenous people. And we can see this through so, like so many different metrics. It's, there's just, there's no question about this at all. Um, and, and this is true. We know this to be true. If you look at the number of, of, of people who've died in the healthcare se setting, uh, how many workers have died, they're overwhelmingly not white. I believe it's 73% are not white. And the majority of the people who are not white are Black. And so, again, this disproportionate impact on Black, low-income, precarious workers, while from the media, uh, we're hearing this message that we are all, all equally impacted, we're all equally at risk, um, which then creates this, this bizarre situation where I know in Kingston, there was this feeling from some people that were like, well, we were successful at keeping this virus out, right? We, we did our part, like we did a really good job. And it's like, uh, I mean, you, you figured out the hard way that that's not how it works, right? It took a couple of months, but um, so these perspectives, so disability, race, uh, and, and, and class are really critical to understanding who is the most at risk. And then you look at the measures that politicians put forward and there's nothing that targets disability, literally nothing. Uh, sorry, there's $600 that, that disabled people were given uh, a one-time payment over the course of the pandemic. Um, and uh, nothing that targeted uh, racialized communities in any significant way. There was no targeted interventions to workplaces that were more likely to have low income racialized workers at it. We knew early in the pandemic that workers going from, from residence to residence was a high risk transmission node for the virus. There was never even a discussion about paying people enough so that they could do, they could only work at one place outside of the healthcare system, right? Last, um, in November 2020, November, December 2020, there was this flurry of, of, of um, articles from Post Media, Toronto Star, and the Globe and Mail about uh, warehouse workers and, and, the, and the risk to warehouse workers. And in one of the articles in the Toronto Star, uh, they featured this guy who was working, uh, picked up extra shifts at Amazon um, for the holidays. And he was like, you know, I he gave them some high number of hours per week, 40 or 50 hours a week, but on top of the other work he was doing, because it worked within his schedule. And this was just a passing mention in the article. And then there was no attempt to say, wait a minute, like if workers going from health, home care, uh, healthcare situation, healthcare situation are, are spreading the virus, surely workers going from this job to that job to this job are also spreading the virus. Like just no perception of the fact that we had created the perfect transmission model within our inequitable society for the virus to be like, yes, I'm a virus with feelings and I love this. And I'm going here and here and here and here, right? Or let's be serious, a virus being like, oh, here's a node, here's a node, here's a node, here's a node, here's a node. So we never talked about it like this. <clears throat> Partly it's because of course our media um, is not just very white and it is very white. Um, 
I, I kept track of who I was quoting. Um, and of the 420 sources or so that I quoted in the book, um, I believe like under 30 were racialized men and under 50 were racialized women and the rest were white. Uh, white women, white men, almost equal. There wasn't really an, uh, a gender imbalance for, for the white journalists. But if you think that that racialized men were, the, were having the, the most severe outcomes in death and in media, they were the least represented in, in, in actually writing about this. Like, obviously, that's going to have a huge impact on, uh, on what we read. And instead, what we read, I, at least what I felt, was a lot of people like me, white women with young children, uh, working from home. And I could see myself in what they're writing. And the anxieties, like, just bled through every single article. I'm like, let me guess. You are aged 31 to 38, and you have two children, and they are likely this age and that age and you're not freaking out like you've got twins like I have twins so I can tell that you know they're probably three to six years apart in age great you know like it was so formulaic and this is I think one of the reasons why childcare became such a big issue is because you literally had the journalists themselves being like holy shit like <laughs> I, I I'm on the phone right like as, uh, as so many of us have experienced but the but the but the most danger was faced by those workers who were not working from home obviously who could not work from home um, and so we have this response, this COVID response that doesn't target the people who are most impacted. We have a journalism core that is not reflective of the people who are most impacted. And then we have a journalism system that maintains, upholds and promotes white supremacy in Canada by, by the way that, that we write about our articles, the way that we talk about Canada, the way that we talk about multiculturalism in Canada, it's all like, doesn't matter what corporation we're talking about, it all like Canadian media works to uphold white supremacy. <clears throat> and at the same time, you have politicians who also work to uphold white supremacy, um, doing their absolute best to maintain the status quo, to protect profits, to protect the bosses, uh, and to give, um, to give every single thing possible to force people to keep working when it was in the workplace that we're seeing the, the, the massive transmission of the virus happening uh, in ways that we only find out about it once it's too late. Once, you know, there's an outbreak of, of many dozens of people or sometimes uh, many hundreds of people. So all of this gets wrapped up in such an interesting way, I think, in the way that we talk about schools. Um, and so um, many of you are probably stressed out because you're on day, what, two of having your kids back. And every single day, if you're like me, you ask your kids, so who had COVID in your class today? Your teacher coughing much? Like, did you guys get COVID? And they're always like, no, mommy, we didn't get COVID. I'm like, okay, I'm going to hold you to that. Uh, we're all like very, very focused on the school system. But what is so interesting is that the schools are, are, are the, the location um, the one, the very few locations we have in society that are not healthcare settings, in fact, probably the only location that is public, that has a direct um, control from the state, where we actually can see what is happening within our communities around the schools. So the school becomes an, a, a location where we can map our communities out. And so rather than seeing schools as, well, of course, kids go to school, they get sick, and then we all get sick, and we know that they're, they're, they're disease bags, and we, we understand that because they are. Um, what we didn't understand was that we actually can see, wait a minute, there is, there is more systemic testing possible within a school situation because it's a public, publicly controlled location. Um, we have 
children who have connections to parents that are in a in an area, some sort of catchment area. So there is going to be some level of common employment among parents, something like maybe not everybody working for, I mean, when I grew up, it was like everybody working at the mall, <laughs> but you know, there's going to be some sort of common work characteristic of the parents in that school. And so what happens if there's an outbreak at this plant or what happens if there's an outbreak at the school, there's going to be some sort of connection between these two phenomena. It's also a location where there's an early warning signal because unlike those factories, unlike, um, unlike other workplaces, the school has to report in a way that workplaces are not going to always have to report where bosses can say, no, 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 you didn't get this here. You probably got this from your kids. No, no, no. You, this is totally separate. Those people didn't work together. This isn't an outbreak. Whereas at the schools, you all not only have like public health requirements to report, and then you've got professionals paying attention to this, like teachers, and then, you know, up to the, up to the line, then you also have parents freaking out being like, wait a minute, my kid's sick. And then they're ringing the, the alarm bells. And so there's a level of, of watching over the school system that just literally does not exist within the workplace. Um, but again, we didn't never understood schools as being that map of our community of understanding this is a school where most of the parents' kids work in manufacturing, in long-term care, uh, and in uh, hospitality, right? Obviously, that's going to be a certain profile versus a school where all the kids have parents who are working in, as lawyers or professional people or as professors or whatever, right? We have these opportunities to make these kinds of um, understandings of our community, but there was a lack, a complete lack of local news. So there's very few organizations present to even do that kind of work. And schools instead became very rhetorically useful to politicians who knew that this, the odds of someone dying in a school or for, because of a school outbreak is very, very low. And so it's very easy for them to play politics with this because they're not going to have a front page uh, spread of all the people that have died because of a school outbreak in the way that they will have that of all the people that die in these long-term care facilities, except the long-term care facilities, not the government's problem because they're operated mostly by these for-profit private corporations and the government has enough like, oh, that's, that sucks, but you know, that's their fault. That's not our fault, right? And then of course, hospitals, like they never even reported how many people are dying within hospital infections. That was, that was news that I had to break um, with, uh, with data from the, from the Canadian Institute of Health information about how many people have died from COVID in hospital settings that they got COVID from. Um, so the, the, the way that, that, um, that politicians have been using the school issue has been highly emotive and has been to, again, reformulate uh, this whole issue from being one that is, is lurking in all of these corners of society that we know it is lurking in, but where there's absolutely no support being given from politicians. Which brings me to kind of the final bit that I'll talk about before I, I start yammering and we can have a more of a conversation, um, is, uh, is the workplace itself. So at the end of May, 2020, the BC Centers for Disease Control put out this massive survey, something like 500,000 people responded to it. And the question was, how are you doing in following public health orders? And it was like washing hands, masking, distancing, this kind of thing. Uh, and some very high number of people said, we're, I'm following them all. Like 97% of people, I think, were following at least one. And then some high number in the 90s was following all of the measures they were saying. And when they asked the question, okay, so how, how well are you following these measures in the workplace? that number drops to below 50 to something like 47%. And this is a story that comes out in May and it's in like the Salmon Arm Observer and maybe a couple of other small town newspapers. 
and nothing else. And when I came across this, I was like, wow, here is the evidence that, that, that people are doing everything they can. Uh, and it's on, it's at work that they can't protect themselves for whatever reason. When will we see those targeted interventions on the workplace? When will we see mandatory reporting regimes? When will we see um, requirements of whatever kinds of PPE? By and large, all of the interventions in the workplaces in this country were, were, were controlled by the companies, the corporations, or the organizations themselves. In some situations, uh, you had migrant farm or you had farm owners who, who rely on migrant labor, were able to get money from the government to like, you know, put up plastic barriers and this kind of thing. But by and large, there was nothing that was targeted towards making sure people could keep themselves safe at work. Um, and so what happened, you get the help of journalists telling everybody every single day, every time you turn on the radio, it's like I heard the, the Canadian Federation of Independent Business like every hour on CBC radio, um, telling people like conceptualize, reconceptualizing the, per, the, 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 the notion of the economy into individual businesses like your corner store, mom and pop shops, your favorite restaurant, your favorite bar, your favorite cinema, your gym, that kind of thing. That was that was the economy. And so every time we talked about opening or closing, it was like, can I get my nails done? No, that'll be closed. Can I go to the can I go to the movies? No. Well, I just got my booster today at, at a movie theater, so that was kind of cool. Um, but so yes, but like normally, no, movie theaters are closed. Um, and and that was the sum total of. Uh, the economy, other than, of course, food production. So there's a bit of an eye to food production because, you know, we're all grocery stores and we can see the impact of supply chains and all this kind of thing. And then, you know, oh, no, groceries, that's essential businesses, pharmacies, essential businesses, um, corner stores, essential businesses, whatever. Hiding behind all this were actually the workplaces that were the by far the most dangerous. And that were, those are, still are, manufacturing, construction, um, uh, it's got this, this sector of businesses has a weird name in French, um, this sector de detail, like um, business services, businesses. So like accounting firms or, or, or cleaning, this kind of thing. Um, ma uh, massive uh, in, uh, industrial food processing facilities, right? Farms, um, energy uh, uh, industries. Um, so mining and energy projects and um, warehousing, shipping, distribution, and transportation, right? And that's kind of in order actually too. Manufacturing's really at the top. And so every time everything's shut down, these corporations, these, these workplaces, they operated like normal, fully like normal. The only exception to that was that construction was shut down in Quebec's first wave, which was very rare. No other province shut down construction. Um, but, but otherwise, Everything operated as normal. Workers were expected to be on the assembly line. Workers were expected to be at work unless there was some disruption to the kind of work they were doing. It was very rare that any of these facilities were shut down for safety purposes, never shut down proactively, and only sometimes shut down reactively because of a massive outbreak. Um, and so <laughs> this means that the average person has its they're in their mind, their idea of a business is a small business. And their idea of a small business is like, you know, an actual small business, unlike the under hundred worker small businesses that like is the actual official word, official definition. And, and every time the politician says the economy, or every time the journalist says the economy, it's represented by these individuals who, who, who own a candle shop, who own a paper shop, who own a Tim Hortons, or who own a whatever, who are all like, my livelihood, my livelihood. And then it was like, okay, we need, we need help for these folks. While in the background, these massive 
corporations with huge workforces are churning out COVID and they're churning out injuries and they're churning out in some cases death. At the end of 2021, I received uh, finally um, a freedom of information request from WSIB and it showed that 107 workers in Ontario had death benefits paid out related to COVID that they caught on the, on the job. And so if you know anything about the WSAB, you know how hard it is to get paid out and you know how hard it is to prove. So you know that these 107 people, like they definitely got COVID on the job. And for every one of them, there was probably a massive outbreak behind um, their cases. And of course, there's, there's many other deaths that, that, um, that won't be reflected in those numbers. Um, and of those numbers, the, the, the majority of people who died were in manufacturing. So not something that we've heard very much about, very little information, very few memorials, public memorials of people having died as a result of catching COVID in a manufacturing position. But, but there you go. I mean, sorry, that's the second highest. The highest are healthcare workers where we did hear um, some information about, but they weren't highest by a lot. Like I have to pull up the uh, numbers. If anyone in the questions is really, really curious, I can pull them up and tell you. But um, but this is where it was where it's circulating. And then it goes down from there, you know, fewer and fewer and fewer down to uh, transportation. Um, and then and then um, there's this whole category of like other of schedule two in industries, which includes federal industries like, you know, the five workers who died from Canada Post um, and uh, at least and then other other um, public bodies, uh, including uh, federal um, federally re regulated bodies as well. And so. There's no conversations about manufacturing. There's no conversations about shutting down any of the energy facilities. Um, you had a situation where in Brandon, Manitoba, um, <laughs> there's a maple leaf factory in Brandon. Uh, they had an outbreak that reached 93 workers and, and the factory was never shut down. And the owners refused to acknowledge that it was, it was at all connected to workplace spread. And public health agreed and said, no, we think that the workers are getting it off work because they all live together and they carpool together to the factory. And there's of course a huge portion of migrant workers among the workers population. Then you go to the Brandon Sun in the middle of this work of uh, this outbreak and, and there's nothing in the sun, like literally nothing. And oh, Maple Leaf is the second, is the biggest private sector employer in the city uh, after uh, the public employer, of course, being the university, the biggest employer. So it's just like, you know, this is replicated in, in towns and in cities all across Canada. And unless you had workers, uh, unless you had journalists who knew the workplace beat, who were really focusing on it, or who made um, certain communities a priority, like was the case with Montreal and um, um, in the National Observer and uh, Global, I think was the partnership uh, in May, who did a real deep dive into North Montreal to figure out what's going on there. Why is there so much COVID? COVID, or uh, the Globe and Mail focusing on the northwest corner of uh, the Peel region in, uh, in, in Brampton, Malton area, unless you had those kinds of features, these were all supplemental to the actual mainstream story, which we are still getting to this day, which is do what you can to not see people get vaccinated, and we're going to make this go away. So I think I've probably rambled enough. I could continue, though, if there are no questions, but I will pause to give myself a glass of water and uh, see if anyone has anything to say. I always make sure I have the biggest glass available. So it's just, <laughs> oh, got it. Okay, do we have anyone? Oh, Carolyn. I'm happy to go. I have so many questions. Thank you so much for that. That was um, wonderful. I always really enjoy listening to you and your podcast, but it's great to have you here kind of live. Um, 
so yeah, I mean, you've brought up so much to think about and like I, I'm often very interested in, yeah, how this idea of the economy gets structured and who is counted as part of the economy as a, like people are not part of the economy as well. Um, but as a geographer, one of the things I've been thinking a lot about and that you talk a little bit about in your book is partly the centralization of media and the impact that that has had on understanding uh, the pan pandemics in different regions of the country. So I'd be interested to hear a little bit more about that kind of geography. Right. And then also, again, you mentioned this in your book, but something that has struck me is how focused, there have been some conversations around vaccine equity in Canada, but it's very, it's a very national conversation, very little discussed about Canada's role on the global stage in terms of undermining vaccine equity. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'd be interested in hearing about the effects of that kind of focus and even some of the political interests that are involved in maintaining that kind of status quo. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, okay, so on the question of geography, this was so so fascinating to me because I'm, you know, I'm one of these people that like uh, believes quite strongly that Canada should not exist and that we need to like undo this this experiment and start something new. Um, and and I certainly uh, solidified that belief during this pandemic. There didn't seem to be a single national media that that understood that there was a need to talk about COVID in a national perspective. And instead what we got was there's over different points of the pandemic, if you ask any person in certain parts of Canada who has the most COVID right now, they would say definitely us, it's definitely us. And, um, and because so much media comes from Toronto, it was always like, oh, it's definitely Toronto. Like Toronto has the most, you just don't understand how much COVID Toronto has, right? And it's like, uh, okay, well, um, let's crunch some numbers and see, oh, no, you don't have it. Actually, it's Regina. Regina has the most COVID, right? So like, one of the things I was so frustrated by and fascinated by that didn't happen was that we didn't have these like, weekly updates of where's the hotspot? Like, where's the hotspot? How much COVID is in that hotspot? What's driving it if we if we know because sometimes you can tell. Um, and let's compare, let's compare these regions from part from region to region. Um, and in absence of absence of doing that, it allowed individuals to feel like they were always living the worst possible situation, right? It was always the worst. I mean, other than you folks in Kingston, I think Kingston is such an interesting example of like being a little bit outside of it, knowing that you have it good, and then like then realizing like very quickly what it's like to not have it good. Um, but, you know, when you, cause when you go through a huge wave, as you discovered, there's this really weird feeling of like, wow, no one can understand what it's like, right? Even if you know, like it's been worse elsewhere and it is worse elsewhere. You're like, holy shit, there's so much COVID in my community. Like, wow. And then, and then you completely forget that actually over here, there's twice as many cases. And so you're feeling that let's put this into perspective. And I don't know what, what, what was with that. I don't know why, um, like you know, the federated structure of Canada has meant that we have a federated structure of news. And so there'd be national journalists that would never touch provincial issues. Uh, we had provincial journalists who would report on death counts of, let's say, healthcare workers and never mention healthcare worker deaths outside of the borders of their own province. Um, and so uh, in Ontario, there's a worker that died um, in Mississauga and they said uh, there was a um, I think it was global. I might be wrong, but I was in touch with a journalist over this, actually. Um, there was like 27 workers have now died from healthcare, in healthcare from COVID. And I, and I emailed her. I was like, what the hell's your source on that? Because the number is double that. And it was like, oh, um, it's Ontario only. It's like, you didn't say that in your report. And literally yesterday, somebody died in Alberta. Like, what is the difference? Why are we reporting it in this way? Um, and so at the provincial level, and then, you know, Saskatchewan, the first time someone died in Saskatchewan, it was like, first, first healthcare workers died. Yeah, 
he's not the first. I mean, at that point, I think he was probably the 30, 32nd or something, but it's like, it would be no, no more difficult to say first in Saskatchewan, 32nd in Canada or whatever, um, to give people an idea of the scope, because of course we're all connected to other parts in this country. Like we're not actually as we are very deeply regional, but we aren't as deeply regional as the media would suggest we are. Um, and then when you go, it gets even worse when you go a level down from the, from the province, because then local news, if it exists, um, often had to like cover territory that had wildly different COVID realities. Um, so you can think of, I mean, the GTA is a great example because there's like that right there, you're covering eight public health units, 10 public health units with none of the same policies, all at different code red, code orange or orange level or blue level or whatever the hell it was. Um, you had situations where like, you know, I like, I, I'm from Georgetown, Ontario. I, uh, found out when I was home for, for the holidays, I did go home for the holidays. That was, I mean, you know, we didn't see anybody. Um, you could, I could not get vaccinated like at home. I wasn't going to get vaccinated, but I was very interested in the politics of it or the policies of it. I can get vaccinated. My brother who lives 20 minutes away and two health units over also could not get vaccinated in Halton because it's for Halton residents, which was wild because when I got my second dose, uh, in Quebec city, I was like, oh, there's a lot of English being spoken. And so I said to the nurse, I was like, what the hell's with all the English being spoken? She's like, oh, they're all tourists. Because the tourists would all come and get vaccinated while they're in check. I was like, oh, okay. And she, you know, she expected I was going to be opposed to that. So then she launched into a big speech about why that was really important, right? So, so, so then you have journalists that are trying to like make sense of very, very different realities, very different health unit um, um, responses. That's more of, a, of an Ontario particularity because the rest of the, of the, of the country didn't have such massive differences from health unit to health unit. Uh, cause they're just not organized like that. Um, but it just, it completely erased context from what is happening, um, from place to place. And it didn't allow people to appreciate that what they're experiencing, like you can benchmark that against other people in this country or against other people in different parts of wherever you live. If you really want to start to understand, uh, how, like what life is like at 300 cases per hundred thousand people or 2000 cases per hundred thousand people, right? Like these are interesting things that journalists should have allowed people to have the tools to deeply explore and understand and situate themselves. Um, and, um, and, and it was just, it was just absent. It was just so very bizarre to me that that was absent and such a, um, such a shame because especially when, once it calmed down in Canada, uh, within uh, Indigenous communities on reserve and COVID shot through the roof. And so then you had this like national narrative that things are better, but you looked at the map and it was like five times higher the number of cases on reserve. And it's just like, without those comparisons, it's very difficult. And finally, the last thing I'll say about that, um, although maybe I'll ask Sam more because maybe with more questions and it is very, very interesting. I'm very interested in this as well, um, is that you also have data regimes that are totally different. And so, you know, Quebec, uh, has its own public health agency and it's very sophisticated. I mean, other provinces do too, but the INSPQ is a like nation level sophisticated institution that is thanks to, you know, Quebec's aspirations of being a country. So when you try to compare INSPQ data to like Saskatchewan, like forget about it, right? Saskatchewan hasn't even released its, its, its expose mortality information from like 2020, right? So, um, we see this all the time. We saw like the, the last big heat wave in 2018, uh, you know, Ontario reported zero deaths and Quebec reported 80 deaths. And it was literally just because of how the hospitals were tracking these deaths. So um, when we, journalists also were never able to come up with their own way to, to figure out what is real and what is fake and, and how are we going to measure this and how are we not going to measure this? And instead what the default is, is to not do it at all. 
or now that testing has changed to literally say testing's changed. So all the numbers from public health are not trustable or are, are not trustworthy anymore, which is what I'm seeing as a line inserted in most articles right now. And it's like, I mean, testing has changed and we need to be that mad about that, but it's still trustworthy. Like it, it's 600 and not 5,000. Like it has the capacity to be higher folks. It isn't just that it's changed that, ah, oh, it's all shit. Oh, you believe those numbers? And I'm getting that from lefties all the time. You believe those numbers? Oh, oh it's probably 10 times higher. Yeah, it probably is 10 times higher, but guess what? We got to operate on proxies here. Okay. And if you don't know what that means, it's because no journalist has explained this to you because they're not writing about it. The question of vaccine equity, I'll be a, a lot more short. Um, uh, it took Canadian media way too long to write about this. I think I was like the first, if not one of the first to write about this in Canada. And I say that uh, very proudly, but also because I was trying to find quotes and stuff to like write on my thing. I was mostly relying on international uh, articles and then like academic work because there just wasn't any other like, I mean, there's some quotes for, about Canada's procurement, um, but Canada blocking the TRIPS waiver, Canada playing very unhelpful roles internationally um, about getting the vaccine out as fast as possible and our vaccine hoarding. I mean, it's just all horrible. And it all is wrapped up in uh, a nationalism that <clears throat> infects all of the major parties right now that is very closed, that is very influenced by the far right, by far right national, I mean, far right organized nationalism, not necessarily like the, the, the people in the street being the far right. Um, and, uh, and we have, again, journalists are not writing about this at all. And it took, it took a long time until it was like, wait a minute, do, is six doses per Canadian fair? Like, is that a fair thing that we've procured? And, and instead it was like, wow, God, the liberals are doing so good. You know, it was totally upside down. And then of course we see the impact of that is, you know, obvious and horrible and, and we'll be living with that for, you know, generations. Thank you so much. Um, we'll move to Tony. Tony has a question. Thanks. Uh, yes, I've got the microphone on. Um, so thanks for your analysis and and for your very animated way of speaking, which is, you know, brightened up my my afternoon. It's definitely <laughs> just, woken me up. That's just um, an Italian thing, you know. I gotta I gotta thank uh, I gotta thank the ancestors for being too poor to stay and going to um, Northern Ontario mines. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm loving it. Academics don't always speak in, in such animated ways. So <laughs> this is nice. Um, just I, you're sort of tipping into uh, in some ways or you're you're coming closer I think into a topic that um that I wanted to ask about thank you for your analysis thus far of of just you know how the systemic issues and um coming into sort of the nationalism and I wanted to ask about um fascism and the co-opting of of you know anti-lockdown and anti-mask groups by you know, known fascists and anti-fascists have been watching that throughout the pandemic. And I wondered if you could speak to just how the media might've covered that or not covered it. Oh yeah. Um, so one of the things that I write about in the book is how unbelievable it is that every like three weeks or so from March, 2020 until November, 2020, there was an article about like um, Canadians willingness to get vaccinated. It was like, you know, will you get vaccinated? Or are you planning to get vaccinated or whatever? And there's no vaccine, right? So it's a completely ridiculous question to ask people because you're only going to get two answers. You're going to get literally inject me with anything you got if it makes us go away or no no way in hell are you injecting me with whatever you've got. You know, like there's no, it doesn't exist. 
it's a, it's a theoretical exercise at that point, but, but, but journalists like amped up this all the time. And can you believe there's 30% of people saying they won't get vaccinated? It's like, there is no vaccine. That's not surprising, but they don't say this in the articles. Um, and so I think, you know, so this is happening March and April and May, June explosion of activism around black lives matter. Right. And so all of a sudden you see that not only are, are after three months of being locked down and people being very, very scared, are people willing to go to the streets uh, for something that they believe in? Um, but then it's also like uh, dem- like proof that organizing is once again possible, right? So we kind of is like the first moment where we see organizing being possible in this in this post-pandemic um, or the, the pandemic world, I should say, the post-introduction of the pandemic world. Um, and so for me, the way that I've been watching the rise of, uh, of, the, of the far right in this way is, is, is by watching Quebec, right? So in Quebec City, we have very active fascists, uh, very active. I mean, people who um, have, have attacked people in the streets and sent people to hospital. And um, obviously, I mean, we're coming up on the, the fifth anniversary of the shooting at the mosque um, here, uh, which is uh, next Saturday, FYI, if uh, that's not on your radar. Um, and... Uh, and so, the, and so, so it kind of like instantly, June, July, August, 2020, uh, I, these racist uh, groups see their uh, opportunity to talk about this being a, another thing against the state. Um, and, and in Quebec, it was kind of like very easy for them to do that because in addition to being racist, um, there's some very like uh, bizarre organizing and state agencies specifically against child services um, uh, probably because a lot of these guys obviously have been in touch with child services who, who find themselves in leadership of these movements. Um, and so it was like very easy for them to look at the government and child services and um, Revenue Quebec also is one of their big targets and then be like, okay, government's just trying to get us vaccinated or the government's just making us stay at home. And so the pivot was very, very quick. They found common cause with some religious organizations and then all of a sudden uh, we're seeing the same names who are, re- who are leading the far right now leading the anti-vax um, movement. Uh, and then in Quebec, they professionalize and become like our conservative party, which is a bit weird. We haven't had a conservative party here for decades. Um, and now we have one. And um, that's thanks to our far right wing radio uh, or far right wing media. Um, I think that the, the, the connection was laid very, very early um, from the media in how virulently anti-Chinese the coverage was from the start. And so even in that moment where things were quiet and no one's like publicly organizing uh, and maybe even not even privately organizing. I mean, I imagine everybody was under some like similar state of shock before they decided that they were gonna be an anti-vaxxer. But the focus on China was so damaging and so um, ridiculous in retrospect. I mean, ridiculous at the time too, but so ridiculous in retrospect that you can see that media really handed them a silver platter of shit and we're like, take this. And they're like, this is what we love. Thank you. And then they took it and whatever. Um, when, so at the end of February, 2020, I think it was like February 26th, a memo comes out from the WHO from China about everything that China had learned uh, up to that point about COVID. And it was a very useful document because it just kind of laid out like how it spread or how they thought it spread and where it spread and what was like where danger was and what the hospital system had to do and all this stuff. And um, they mentioned long-term care and prisons specifically as being locations where COVID spread very quickly. And 
uh, and so this gets sent out on February 26th. February 29th, McLean's, remember it was a leap year that year? Yeah. McLean's um, uh, puts out like their next issue. Um, I don't remember if it was the March issue or if it was even the April itch issue, but cause like they're all like decollé by like they're all like off a cycle by a little bit. But anyway, but it's out on online. It was out much earlier online than it was in in, uh, in, uh, in print. But the, the cover is this like very menacing China gas mask, pandemic biohazard warfare at the same time as um as like the two michaels right oh my god our michaels we need to we need to de michael china right and um mclean's has this big feature on uh how well prepared canada is for the pandemic uh at the same time as like just like ah, china like boo earns um and uh and there's this line in the article in this long feature that I, you know, when I read it in retrospect, I like burst out laughing, which was that um, Canada had a case at Sunnybrook Hospital, I think, one of the hospitals in Toronto, and uh, they called a press conference and the hospital management's there and public health is there and there's a politician there. And, and they said this was the kind of transparency that that makes Canada number the number two country prepared in the world for pandemics, right? And it's just like, you keep telling yourself that McLean's cause you're about to find out that that is not true. Um, when I was trying to figure out like what was going on in the earliest days, uh, February 6th ended up being the first death known death in the United States of someone with COVID. This is not announced until April. Um, but it was an individual who had no contact with China to travel to China or, or, or anything like that, that obvious, um, for how she got it. And she dies on February 6th. And so I thought, Hmm, I love the current. Let's see what the current was talking about on February 6th, where right south of us, someone's dying from COVID, right? Oh, they're talking about China hiding this and not doing anything to stop the spread of the virus. So it was just, everything was oriented towards China. And, and, and then you had Bonnie Henry talking about China, 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 in one of her press conferences, announcing that there were cases coming from the United States, right? But China, right? Or Iran, but China, or um, where was the other place at that point? I mean, that was like, there was very few cases, but it was like Iran and, and, and the US and then Italy. Um, and it, it was just like, it just made it such perfect, a perfect offering to the far right to, to glom onto this. Um, I think the big question is like, what comes after all this is finished? How do they transform? But the power that they have shown through the election uh, is like, quite frankly, something that the left has not been able to do um, in a very long time in this country. And it is, it's, it's, um, it, you know, it, it's, it's a good reminder, I guess, of like what happens when there's no left-wing criticism allowed of the pandemic, of pandemic management and discussion. Um, and I don't mean like we need a left-wing anti-vax movement like exists in so many places in Europe right now. Um, but, but, but criticism is, is just not allowed. Like, I mean, I can tell you directly, like when you try to criticize what's going on within this country, you don't get published. And, um, and because of that, I think that we've created like we media and politicians are like this is awesome because both main parties need the far right they need the far right to help like justify what they do um we've created this world where if you're critical of you're either critical and therefore you're going to be in the category of, of far right of anti-vax and all the stuff or you're just not going to say anything and i think that that's the biggest tragedy because canada really could have used a dose of criticism in this pandemic because all of the opposition parties have been very, very weak for, for various structural reasons and strategic reasons. Um, but, and then journalists have not been critical at all. 
And so that leaves people, average people who are just like, wait, but I know something's wrong without any kind of like popular expression of that criticism. And instead, all we have is this burgeoning fascist um, movement, uh, which I think will only unfortunately get worse, um, you know, even if we're still trying to fight them in the streets. Thank you so much, Nora. Um, I don't see any other hands or a comment on the chat, so uh, maybe I can ask a question. Uh, I have two, uh, I, I'm assuming one will be kind of lengthy, but the first one is about, this is kind of a personal question really, because, you know, I was, I was wondering about your reaction to the, uh, that uh, uh, hashtag on Twitter, the Canadian media failed, because yeah. when I saw, saw that I was like, oh, Nora. Um, and then the second one is kind of, uh, it's about, so, you know, since, you know, you kind of argued convincingly that, you know, workplace has been the kind of the silent, uh, uh, you know, hub for COVID. And so I was wondering about, you know, kind of, uh, what you think about kind of unions and union responses and also kind of left-wing, you know, political response. Yeah. Um, okay. So. Oh man, on, on Christmas Eve, I did this interview um, with Talk Radio Montreal. Uh, I've done not many mainstream interviews about this book. You all might be very surprised to find out. Um, but I did this with CJ, CJD, the Anglophone Radio Montreal. And um, at the end of the interview, the journalist says, where have you been? Where have you been this whole time? And I said to him, I'm like, I really didn't know what he meant. And I was like, do you mean where am I located? Like, cause it's Montreal Radio. So it's like, I'm in Quebec City. And he's like, no, like, just where, why, why have we not heard this before? Right. And I wanted to reach through my phone and strangle him. And it wasn't even his fault. Right. Like how, like, you know, of course it's an innocent question. Right. It's like, where have I been? Like guy, I have been like screaming by myself, like for the last two years. Um, there, there is so little space to have critical conversations about, about journalism in Canada that, anybody that tries is just like sidelined, just totally marginalized, right? Like you think CBC is interviewing me? Like, obviously maybe like, yes, I did do like afternoon radio state syndication because the producer likes my stuff, but by and large, you just cannot have a, a, a mainstream open conversation about the failures of media in this country. It's just not allowed. You're certainly not allowed to insult or criticized directly other journalists, the number of journalists who, who blocked me during this pandemic, who I did not, I mean, there's probably two who deserve to block me, but I mean, like Robert Benzie from the Toronto star blocking me by for saying actually slavery did exist in Canada before 1867. It's just like, what is wrong with you people? So it's not surprising to see like, finally this Canada media failed thing. And it's not just coming from the far right. Cause often it's always like defund CBC. Right. But it came, it's so funny to me that it came at for what it came because Doug Ford tr like pulled his own stunt with his little shovel like backwards shoveling trying to shovel snow that's what finally was like broke the camel's back like I'm that's great uh, but it shows that there's this latent anger and I know this because people read my book and they tell me this all the time they're like you know you're art articulating something that I cannot believe I don't see anywhere else um, but this anger in how uh, our journalists, uh, our journalists, how journalism in this country operates is palpable and it's, and it's really toxic. Um, and, and there's no uh, pressure valve to release that other than people just tuning out and finding alternative media, which is great. I mean, alternative media is like the only way I exist. So I'm obviously a big fan of it, 
but there, but there has to be mainstream options for people that, that doesn't make them want to tear their hair out every single time that they turn on the current. Right. Um, the, the problem is, is, I don't know what it's going to take to fix, to unfail Canadian media. I actually don't think it can be unfailed. I think that, um, I think that the entire post-media empire is on a very clear track that it will not get off of. Um, and the only thing that's going to save local news are people buying tiny newspapers and building them from literal scratch. <laughs> um, I just saw a story about a guy trying to do that in Tilbury, Ontario. So like, okay, like I love it. I think that that's just wonderful, but you know, the problems, if we look at the CBC, I think post media's problems are very obvious, right? Owned by a right wing hedge fund, like it's, you know, it's being sold for parts. The Toronto Star has only got a lifeline from guys who hope to make their money off of online gambling. Like, we'll see how far that that goes. Um, and it was a big deal that it was during the pandemic that the Toronto Star finally changed hands uh, from Hondrick to, um, to Bitove and uh, Rivet. Um, but the CBC is, it, this is a huge problem. The, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation is a huge problem. And they are, um, and so many journalists are aware of the problem within the CBC. There's no question about that. But I, I mean, like if, if they've hired management specifically to destroy that organization, they are doing a very good job because from everything from like workplace conditions to the quality of the news that we're able to get is just bad. And um, and you know, I, I am shocked that the, like, okay, we, there was no appreciation for the role that journalism plays as a pandemic measure. Okay. So journalists were expected to broadcast public health orders and they did. I mean, CBC did these spots on how do you wash your hands? I'm sure talk radio was doing that. I'm sure that was, you know, all there's all, every article still tells you what the symptoms of COVID are. Um, and yet the CBC was given nothing from the federal government in pandemic relief, not a cent. Rogers was given $120 million. Bell was given about the same amount of money. Uh, anybody could apply for the wage subsidy except for Crown Corporations. And so CBC was given nothing. At a moment where uh, it should have been like no strings, massive funding injection to, 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 to feed local news. The CBC was given absolutely nothing. And at the same time, you have these people in power there who are too afraid to challenge power, who literally see their job as making sure that we're maintaining a status quo that doesn't work for anybody in Canada. So I love to see the, the, the hashtag trending. I wish that there was more mainstream criticism of, of news because without it, it will go into a right-wing place. It's been no fault of the people who are feeling that because you need to, to park your anger somewhere and there's just not enough of us with any profile to be able to have that anger parked where we are and say, okay, you're angry now, turn it towards X or Y or Z. So I'm very, I mean, I'm optimistic about a lot of stuff, but Canadian media is like, I, like I'm just literally waiting for, for it to die. And it's, um, it's going to be a painful death and we're all going to be worse off as a result. Um, the second question that you asked me, I forget unions. the union. That's why I forgot. Oh, the unions. Okay. Well, all right. So like, it must be said that this crisis is happening after 30 years of neoliberalism where the left has been battered in Canada and almost doesn't exist. So it was not a good time for us, right? It would have been a better time if it hit us in the seventies. Uh, actually even the eighties would have been a better time for it to hit us than this. Um, I think that the, that the unions, um, I mean, I wouldn't give them a very high grade in the response to the pandemic. 
um, because they think that for, for, for all of the moments where we needed radical action, like real radical action that did not care about the law, that did not care about uh, politics to politicians, um, that could be strategic and that could reach people where they're at and give people what they need, uh, it has been mostly a failure. Um, this model of a union as a lobby organization is also a failure. And we're still seeing that, like, we're still seeing the unions, like lobbying the government to like change certain things as if their members themselves can't do certain things on their own. You know, in the early days of the pandemic, we saw mass worker action in transit where transit operators were saying it's too safe for us. It's too unsafe for us to collect fares, get on the back door. You don't have to pay. Right. That, that was collective worker action that not just, uh, kept their workers safe. It also was great. I mean, free, free, yes, this is what we need is free transit. And then by, by June, 2020, that stopped and that never came back, even though COVID came back in many, many, uh, in several different waves, um, across, uh, across Canada. Um, I think that, you know, the unions were very, um, like everybody was struggling. Everybody didn't know what to do. They have a responsibility to protect their members. A lot of them had their nose to the grindstone trying to protect those members. Um, and so, I mean, I have a little bit of sympathy for why we didn't see tons of radical action, but, um, it is, it is very difficult, um, to see that even in a moment like this, they couldn't say, don't worry about your collective agreement. Don't worry about the law. You're not going to work. It's not safe for you to work. And instead it was a lot more like, go to work. We're going to grieve this. We're going to fight this. You know, you'll be okay, but go to work. And I think that this is where the, the teachers was a really good example of like kind of the failure. Um, you know, you had, it's so funny. It's really interesting. So teachers in British Columbia made the highest number of claims of workplace um, safety related to COVID. They're like not even close on the list of like, where the, what was most dangerous, right? Like nurses, personal care, like they're way high on the list. So it was obviously like organizing, organizing there, which I think is really interesting, but like Ontario with all of this, um, wait for Doug Ford to make the right decision, get Doug Ford to make, maybe Doug Ford's gonna make the right decision. It's like, he's not gonna make the right decision. Like the guy literally is not going, he like, it's like getting him to put his pants on the proper way. Like they're always going to be backwards. He's cannot help himself. He will put his pants on backwards every single time he tries. Um, and rather than seeing again, communities as local centers, like community spots, right? Where if there's lots of COVID in your community, you got to shut your school down. If there's not that much COVID in your community, you got to keep it open. Um, teachers were not making those decisions. It was always like, oh, we're finding out the last minute. It's like, why don't you make the decision? Like at some point, why doesn't the union say teachers are not showing up tomorrow? Sorry. You did not give us this information. It's Friday. We're not showing up on Monday because you do not give us 10 hours notice. You do not give us 24 hours notice. You give us three days, you know, just setting up terms like that. They, there was no throwing their weight around. There was no, and teachers are so like afraid, you know, like, it's really funny. I grew up with my parents are teachers. My brother's, my brother's teacher. I'm, I'm very, very connected to that world. And I don't really get what the fear is about, to be honest, but they're so afraid. They're so afraid of public opinion. They're so afraid of, um, of getting in trouble. And I, of course it's like, cause you know, their bosses are principals, like Christ, like, I, like principals are at the top of the list of people that I'd never want to be in the same room with. Sorry to anybody that, you know, might be hoping to be a principal someday. So I get it. I get it. Like, these are not like, like they're they can be toxic work environments, blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the day, teachers do have some power and, um, and the difference between how teachers, how I felt like this, this, the, the feeling was here versus in Quebec. I mean, I, I didn't get a, a hint of anxiety from our teachers. I mean, things are not good here, but, but there was, it was very, very interesting about how, uh, um, 
the, the unions did not provide that leadership. And then, and then it, you could see the anxiety from people being like, well, what, I'm going to walk out. And it's like, well, no, you can't obviously be the only person to walk out, you know? Um, and so that was very disappointing. I think the real big question is what's the future of the labor movement after having experienced what we've just gone through. And, it, and there's no question like labor relies on the, the it's premised on the idea that there is goodwill on the side of the employer. Because if there is no goodwill, then we cannot have negotiations. So like negotiations have to happen with goodwill. And I think that this pandemic should have like just obliterated the idea that there is any goodwill that cares about the, the, the health and the safety of individual workers from any employers anywhere. I mean, it's just like obliterated. It's not, it does not exist. And if that's the case, then, then that threatens uh, the labor relations regime in this country, because how can you have a negotiation without any goodwill? And the, the bad side is that the, the employers have seen how far they can push workers and workers are still staying fine. Um, and like, like there hasn't even been a, a union person arrested in the pandemic, maybe other than like, you know, four reps out at the, the strike in Regina, but, but that was peripheral to the pandemic anyway, that wasn't about the pandemic, that was about their strike. So yeah, I think it's a really, it's really bad, but it's not as bad as the NDP. Um, maybe building on that, Tony has a question in the chat here. I think we're running out of time. We still have a little bit of time. Um, she'd love to know more about what we've learned from this pandemic that we can apply to future crises and disasters, including climate change. Yes. Oh boy. I mean, okay. Yeah. Let's be positive. All right. Cause we all know the negative, right? We all know the negative. Okay. The positive things that we can learn. Um, I think that um, we have been in this social experiment with social media for now 20 years um, about our understanding of community and relationships and, and this kind of thing. The pandemic has shown we need people. We need people in our lives. We need uh, reasons to be with people at the same time that there's a pressure for us to stay home for everything, right? Like I know people that don't even go in the grocery store anymore, which is a point of contact with humanity. Like even if it sucks, I just can't even imagine not seeing the people I see at the grocery store like every four days or whenever the hell I go, right? Um, and so I think that there's a lot that we've learned about how much we do need people and how a left-wing response needs to push it back against uh, this completely sanitized, isolated existence that 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 the technology really wants us to be to be having. Um, and so for organizing, I think that means like, of course, we're going to supplement our organizing with social media. We are on social media. It's a huge part of our lives and a huge part of where we are and where others are. But those in-person uh, spaces are so important and it will take a couple of years for us to forget about how important they are. It will take a couple, it will probably take each of us a hundred hours in mind numbing meetings before we completely forget that it is still important for us to sit through those meetings together. Um, while we probably can still do some meetings online um, and be more comfortable as well. Um, so that I think is very, uh, that's very positive. Uh, I think we've learned also that Canada um, uh, the, the, the Federation, uh, is not set up to actually do anything in a moment of crisis, right? We have a federal government that didn't use its emergency powers once they could have used their emergency powers to set up a hospital. They could have used them to force data collection. They could have used emergency powers to mail us all food or whatever, like anything they could have done anything and they didn't do anything. 
uh, uh, with them. And I think that that is also very damning because if we don't like this is a, this is like obviously an emergency. And if our federal government doesn't use emergency powers in a moment of an emergency, like what are they for? Like they'll be for social repression, right? They'll be for crushing some sort of movement rather than actually like keeping anybody safe from COVID. Um, uh, I think um, I think that uh, this is not something I think that everybody has learned yet. And I think some people have, and it'll be up to them to help like everybody understand this, but COVID has been so disorienting and there's been like conversations have been so circular and disorienting and narrow and weird and people are getting weird. Uh, and I, I'm personally very concerned about how a lot of people are doing right now. Um, and I think that, you know, climate change is a long haul crisis and, and we're not going to die from climate change. All of us, we're not going to die on mass. Um, the period of time between uh, mass extinction and where we are now is probably many generations. If it's even ever going to come, what will happen is all of these horrifying seemingly random moments of flash floods and flash heat waves and, and moments where uh, it'll come out of nowhere and all of a sudden someone you love is totally their life is at risk and you're not prepared for it because you couldn't prepare for it. Um, and so I think that we need to think through cutting through that that confusion and cutting through um, the way liberalism like repackages everything and then redefines everything and then makes it so hard for, 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 for act like for actual left-wing voices to operate in a way that, that doesn't make them sound like they're being cranky or they're just opposing everything that I found has been very, very, very difficult. Um, and climate change is especially something that we need to consider because the liberals, like the liberals and liberalism um, very easily exploits climate change and very easily confuses us. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's as easy to convince people that recycling is going to save us as it is as um, mass extinction to reduce the, the human population will save us. I mean, like there's, <laughs> there's so many easy ways to confuse the, 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 the average people that, that those of us on the left have to really think hard about being clear, cutting through it and giving people the, the, the information that they need. Uh, so that, that they don't actually buy into the lies. Um, and, and that's going to be really hard because we're going to like right after this pandemic is over, we'll probably be back in election time. Well, Doug Ford's going to get reelected. And then you'll have the liberals being like, well, we weren't Doug Ford elect us. And then it'll be like, oh, my God, no, 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 you're, you're just as bad. And, and so there'll also have to be like some sort of like collective sanity keeping uh, accountability making amongst uh, one of us, uh, each other to make sure that um, we're, we're, our, our eye is not off of the prize. Like we're able to see through all of this stuff and not get confused and disoriented. Um, but I'm very, very, very concerned about that disorientation. Um, and I also think that what we've learned is that, um, when everything is failing about our state, that, uh, the failures are very well covered up by, um, people's like incredible efforts and that, people's incredible efforts will hide problems that we have. And so we also have to figure out a way to um, not allow problems to be hidden by doctors working 36 hours in a row or by nurses working 16 hour shifts or something like this. Um, and that's really hard because the pressure again, is going to be from the state for these people to do that kind of work. Teachers doing heroic efforts or, or mutual aid being really, really important. All of these things that we do to help, hide or or correct this the problems of the state we have to do them while shouting loud and clear 
what we're covering up, what we're, what gaps we're filling, because otherwise the state will absorb us as being part of its mechanisms. Yeah, which we won't do because we don't want to be performative, right? <laughs> and this is funny, right? It's like I, I, I love the word performative because I, I am obviously very performative and like in the in the very basic sense of the words, like I love performing, right? Um, and I, and I think that it is funny because we have to, I do think that we have to like talk, like we have to explain what we're thinking because also this is another problem with social media, um, you know, and I've been talking about this recently. So sorry if you've listened to the last episode of Sandy Nora, but uh, uh, you know, like the state has a monopoly right now on optimism, right? The state owns optimism because they want us to think that it's almost over. And we're in a situation now where if you try to be optimistic, people are like, well, what you want people to die? And you're like, no, no, like we can, we can be optimistic. Being optimistic is not me saying I support literally anything. It's me saying, I mean, I could be optimistic or I could be pessimistic right now. I mean, you know, like everything's shit. I'm 90% pessimistic. Let me 10% of optimism. Um, but I find that very interesting because we, we don't have a left-wing optimism, uh, an expression of optimism right now. Uh, it, it, it just gets reconstructed as being your um, you're upholding the, the, the optimism of the state and therefore you're supporting state like state sanctioned murder. Right. So that's also something that I'm thinking a lot right now of how, of what does left-wing optimism look like, um, when there's very little to be optimistic about. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Margaret says, I really appreciate Nora's sharp political analysis. Um, I was a journalist in my former life and I faced everyday censorship of my work. Thank you for inviting Nora. Oh, thank you, <laughs> Nora, yeah. you know, for joining us. Oh, I was going to say, um, thank you, Margaret, for that comment, because that's, uh, I mean, it's, it's really heartbreaking. To, and I know that, I know that, I know that that's, that's normal. Uh, just having a, you know, uh, last call for last comments and questions. Amazing. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much, Nora. You know, uh, we really appreciate the work you do. Uh, and, you know, uh, and for folks, you know, if you haven't read her books, please do. Uh, and also, you know, check her podcasts as well. Uh, it is really uh, optimistic, let's say, <laughs> to follow your work. Thank you so much, Sarah. Great. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples and brought to you by the generous support of the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science.